Well, last time I started off by sharing a snippet of my personal testimony. I think it's a good time to add to that. I mentioned that I did not become a Christian until my freshman year of college. That was back in 2001 when I attended UC Berkeley. I often get a reaction of shock and astonishment whenever I tell people that, because they usually associate that being the place where the faith of our young people goes to die. But the Lord works in mysterious ways. The location of my salvation is surprising to people, as is the timing. Again, freshman year of college, that's, isn't that when most young people lose their faith? They grew up in a Christian home. The faith was never really their own. They go off to college. The temptation comes, and they just turn from the Lord. But you see, I wasn't even raised in a Christian home. That too surprises people. Some think you're just born into your religion, but I sure wasn't. The only real religious influence I had growing up was at school. My parents did send me to a Lutheran elementary school just because it was a good school. And I learned a few of the Bible stories and whatnot, but by no means was I a believer. And that became very clear by the time I went to public junior high and high school. Throughout junior high and high school, I was always a good student, but very corrupt and depraved in my actions and attitude and speech. A Christian friend of mine later told me that he thought I was the last person who would ever become a Christian. I actually studied world religions a lot in high school, but nonetheless, I was pretty much an atheist. Although that's not technically true, I was my own God, I just didn't know it at the time. I was merely living for myself and the passing pleasures of the world. When come college, that really kicked into high gear. I joined a fraternity, went down the whole drinking and partying route. I was getting my fill of what the world had to offer. But pretty quickly, that the taste of the world became sour and bitter in my mouth. I wondered, is this what life was about? I was away from home on my own for the first time ever. And all those you know, meaning of life questions started to run through my mind, like, who are we? How do we get here? Is there a purpose to it all? I looked at the majority of people around me in this rat race, pursuing self and pleasure. To what end? To no end. And in the end, it's just lasting dissatisfaction and emptiness. I became convinced there had to be something more, and I find myself just breaking down and crying out to God. God's existence became evident to me. I wasn't a believer per se, but I remember distinctly taking walks at night in the hills of Berkeley, not a safe thing to do, but talking to God, asking God to reveal himself to me if he was real. It's like Romans 1 says, although I didn't know at the time, that God, he's made himself evident within us, but we suppress that truth and unrighteousness and because we want a life of sin and, and pleasure, per se. At times, God gives people over to these futile pursuits, but at other times, he will stop someone dead in their tracks, and that's what he did to me. I found myself overnight leaving behind that drinking and partying lifestyle. I had already studied world religions extensively, but was nonetheless drawn to the Bible. It, too, became evident to me as God's word. Just read it for yourself. It's what I often tell people today. I made contact with some friends who I knew were Christians, and as I pieced together the gospel for me, it made perfect sense, and I believed straight away. The truth claims of the Bible accorded perfectly with the world as I knew it, that people are running around lost in their sin, pursuing satisfaction in self, denying their creator, leading to futility and emptiness, but only in God is meaning found, and only in Christ is forgiveness and reconciliation and new life found. And by the end of that year, 2001, I was all in, convinced of the truth of God and his word. 
I shared that testimony. It's a short version, but with many different people at many different times over these past, I guess, 15 years now that I've been a Christian. And again, what strikes some people is that it's pretty out of the blue. I came from a non-Christian home and then went to a distinctly non-Christian college. And yet there I became a Christian. How does that happen? How do you explain that? I'm sure unbelievers would reason away my conversion as some psychological experience. But I know, and I, and I trust you know for your own sakes, your own selves, that it's, it's nothing but the power and the, the grace of God at work. And such testimonies, even your own personal testimony, can speak volumes to the power and the grace of God at work in our lives. I think of much greater conversion testimonies like that of Martin Luther or Augustine. But there's one conversion story in particular that puts all others to shame. There was one person who came to saving faith from the least likely of backgrounds, and the least likely of times, but he was so radically transformed, he pretty much turned the world upside down. And his conversion was so sudden and radical, it's impossible to explain away. I'm talking, of course, about the Apostle Paul. He's nowhere near the Lord Jesus. We don't worship him, but when it comes to a mere man, no one was used as greatly as Paul for the spread of the gospel. And today we want to study his profound conversion, especially as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've really been up to for the past two weeks, studying the resurrection of Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, we came to the end of Mark's gospel, going through it verse by verse. Mark concludes his gospel with a very, very brief account of the resurrection. But before we move on to what's next, I wanted to spend a little extra time, a little bonus time, studying the resurrection. It's, after all, it's one of the most important truths of the Christian faith, so why speed through it? So after studying the account of the resurrection in Mark, we spent a couple weeks studying the reality of the resurrection. For the past few weeks, we've been looking into the reality of the resurrection of Jesus in Scripture, seeing just how amazingly clear and consistent and authentic the account is. And despite being supernatural, it goes with all reason and evidence, not against it. The Bible claims that Jesus was crucified on a Friday and then rose on Sunday. Some women, the disciples, they showed up at his tomb and found it empty. Then later he appeared to them, physically risen from the dead, transforming them. Even more, opponents and enemies like Saul of Tarsus saw the risen Lord and they too were transformed. And together these apostles gave over their entire lives to preach this risen Christ. Thousands came to believe and the early church began. That's the basic narrative of the New Testament, right? Now here's the thing. Unbelieving scholars and skeptics, they're forced to admit the latter part of that story is true. It's undisputed by reputable scholars that in the first century AD, people called Christians, they started popping up all over the place, believing in Jesus, believing he rose from the dead. That's that's just a plain fact of history. And now after a couple hundred years, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So they came from somewhere. They accept all that, the last part that they started back then, but Those in the world, they refuse to accept the first part of the Bible story, the the explanation for the church, namely that Jesus truly rose from the dead. They, They can't accept that because that would mean Jesus is Lord, and they don't want that. 
But then you see they're left with a problem. They have to somehow explain away the existence and the spread of the church without Christ actually rising from the dead. You may think, okay, that's not that big of a deal, right? But when you actually start to study the facts, study scripture, study what we know, it's a tall order. In fact, it's impossible. There is no logical or reasonable explanation for these facts of history apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what we've been trying to put on display for the past couple of weeks. Now, yes, I'll admit these are more like apologetic sermons than anything. We're offering up a defense for the reality of the resurrection. But we're trying to show that even though it's an unbelievable belief that Jesus rose from the dead, Christ's resurrection is the only explanation that accords with all the facts. It explains that which even unbelievers cannot deny. They try and come up with their alternative explanations to the reason the church away. But we showed how these are all self-defeating and hollow and all the resurrection of Christ. It's built on a foundation of stone. And I want you to know that. I want you to understand that. Why are we doing this? Why even bother studying this? You come here. I trust most, if not all of you, already believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I hope that's true. But as I've said over the past two messages, the intent here is to strengthen your faith, your faith which already exists, to to build it up, to encourage it. It's so encouraging to know that what you believe makes sense. It fits with the facts, that you are not the the anti-intellectual fool with your head in the ground just believing some fairy tale, that this actually makes sense and fits the facts. So by offering up some evidences for the resurrection the past two weeks and today, I'm hoping that your faith is simply encouraged and strengthened, your convictions are deepened, and you can weather all the attacks that have always come against the faith and always will. Now to get back into this study, which we're going to finish this morning, we've been focusing on three facts of history in particular, facts which even unbelieving scholars don't deny. So far we've covered, number one, that the tomb of Jesus was empty. At least that's true they would say. And also number two, that the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. These are facts, but the question is, how do you account for them? As we've seen the numerous theories skeptics propose, they all fall helplessly far short. They contradict themselves to the point of becoming irrational nonsense. And I want you to know the resurrection is not irrational. It may be supernatural, but if God is real, it's, it's actually a perfectly rational explanation for everything that happened. And indeed, when you study those facts, the resurrection is the only rational explanation for everything that happened. And so we want to now finish up this little study with a third and final fact to consider. This one, though, is quite powerful when it comes to testifying of the reality of the resurrection. So we finish today with number three, opponents like Paul and James were transformed. You've got opponents like Paul and James, and they were transformed. Let's talk about this. We've already talked about how all of Christ's disciples were transformed by seeing him risen from the dead by his resurrection. This group of cowards became like uncaged lions after seeing the risen Lord. But their transformation was not as powerful as Paul's. Why not? 
Because they were already followers of Jesus to begin with. Paul was not. In fact, he was a belligerent enemy of Christ. And it says a whole lot more about the power and the authenticity of a movement when you can convert your enemies and bring them over to your side. That, that says something. For example, in recent news, it came out that the Democratic National Convention people had rigged the process in favor of Hillary. And the reaction was, well, big surprise. Like, who's surprised by that? We expect people to lie, cheat, and steal when it benefits their own movement. What would be really shocking is if you had some hardcore, lifelong, militant Republican, sold-out Republican values, and then he switches, goes to the other side overnight, and becomes their most vocal supporter. That would be something. That would be noteworthy and newsworthy. That would be shocking. You see, it's one thing to have the support of your own people, but on a whole other level is when you're garnering support from the other side, from the totally opposite people. They're converting, they're joining you, they're supporting you. That says a lot. And that's what you have with men like James and Paul. And when you study their transformation, it testifies really powerfully to the reality of Christ's resurrection. Their transformations can't be explained any other way. Now, let's start off with James. Here, I'm talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was one of the biggest figures in the early church. The other James, the brother of John, remember him? He was the first to go. He was the first apostle to be martyred. He died very early on by Herod. So that left behind Peter and John and this James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the pillars of the church. That's what Paul called them in Galatians 2.9, the pillars of the church. Although James was not among the original 12 disciples, he became an apostle very early on. And he's basically the top guy in the Jerusalem church. Peter eventually went on to Rome. John went on to Ephesus. As far as we know, James stuck around in Jerusalem, and he was the main guy. He was, in in a way, the leader of all the apostles. Read Acts 15, something called the Jerusalem Council, and James was leading them all. He was the top guy. So all this goes to say James, the brother of Jesus, was a huge figure in the early church. He's up there with Peter and John in importance, and like them, he penned a book of the Bible, the epistle of James. But what what sets James apart from men like Peter and John is not only did James not follow Jesus around while he was alive, but James did not even believe in Jesus while he was alive. That's right, it's it's shocking when you think about it, but James and all of the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him while he was alive. We gather this, for instance, from John chapter 7, verse 5, which says of Jesus, not even his brothers were believing in him. We also saw some of this back in Mark 3, if you might remember, where we saw his brothers, and they basically thought Jesus was out of his mind. It's really surprising when you think about it. It's one of those embarrassing details in the Gospels that nonetheless rings with authenticity. Because you'd never make that up. Why would you ever make up the fact that the the very brother of Jesus, who becomes the, the leader of the church, didn't even believe in him at first? That's crazy. But it's true, and it rings of authenticity. Surely James knew that Jesus was different. I mean, he was sinless. Growing up, imagine your sibling is sinless. You'd probably hate them. But it appears that Christ's brothers simply believed he was a religious fanatic, one of those 
religious nuts. They knew he wasn't a liar. They knew he wasn't a phony. They just thought he was overzealous. They too were stumbled by their preconceived notions of the Messiah into which Jesus did not fit. James's unbelief continued through the death of Christ. We gather this because while on the cross, Jesus entrusted the care of Mary's mother into the hands of the Apostle John. If James were a believer at this time, he surely would have given Mary, their mom, into the care of James. So think about this one. Here's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who does not believe in Jesus as the Christ. This unbelief is probably deepened when Jesus was crucified. But then, just a short time later, after Jesus dies, a very short time later, we see James again, and now he's a total believer. He's all in. He fully believes. He believes that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Furthermore, more than just believing, James has fully joined the other disciples and giving over his total life to preaching Jesus as risen from the dead. In his mind, James no longer views Jesus as simply his older brother, but now he is the the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's how James describes Jesus in James chapter 2, verse 1. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This transformation took place just within weeks of Christ's death. We find this, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, not long after the ascension, it says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were all there. So here's the deal. In a very short time, you have the radical transformation of James, such that before, he did not at all believe in his brother as the Christ. But after, he totally believed, and he gave up his entire life to the spread of the good news of his brother, even unto death, even unto death. And talk about conversion story. The next question is, well, how do, you, how do you explain that? James is a fact of history. He existed. He was there in that early church. There actually aren't any real theories out there to try and explain away his conversion. For as far as I can tell, it's mostly ignored. But what happened to James? Remember, he didn't believe. So he had no reason to join some conspiracy to steal the body of Jesus or fabricate this lie they try and accuse the disciples of that, but James doesn't fit that mold. Why would you give up your life for your dead brother who you know is a phony and a fraud? Also keep in mind, like the rest of the disciples, James had nothing to gain. In this life, there, there was nothing for them. No money, no fame, there's nothing. In fact, believing in Jesus at that time was a very dangerous proposition He would have been a whole lot safer and more prosperous if he just stayed a Jew, stayed in his unbelief. But scripture, though, tells us what happened. And we know. But it's a powerful testimony. What could change someone like this from such unbelief to belief in a profound way? Scripture explains the source of James' conversion in a way that fits with everything else we've studied for the past two weeks. You remember 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is rattling off the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He says, in verse 5, that Jesus then appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, 
most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to James. We don't know the exact details of that resurrection appearance. That's all that's said. But it most likely took place in Galilee, possibly even in Nazareth. But Jesus was not about to let his brothers remain in their unbelief and darkened state. He appeared at least to James, and it's not hard to piece together that's when James believed. And more than just believing, his life, we can see afterwards, was completely transformed, radically changed. Christ was not just his his brother, but now his Lord and his master. And so James, being a hostile witness, nothing in this. He becomes one of the greatest personal testimonies to the resurrection of Christ. There is no other way to explain his radical transformation. And then his belief that his brother was alive from the dead and that he saw him. A belief which he took even unto death as with all the other apostles. But there's still more. So file James away in the back of your mind. I mean, that already That already is huge. That's a huge testimony if all we had was that of James. It speaks volumes to the reality of Christ's resurrection. How do you, how do you account for that? There's no options. But there's another conversion in Scripture that makes James's conversion look minor and insignificant. And again, talking about the Apostle Paul, his conversion was even more remarkable. Paul's, and the great thing about Paul even among these unbelieving scholars, his existence and his impact on the early church is not doubted. They all accept him. He's a real historical figure. But this means you have to account for his radical transformation and his, his testimony. Now let's look into that. Why don't you turn to Acts chapter 9. We'll get there in a second, but just turn to Acts chapter 9. Paul was known as Saul. It was his Hebrew name. We first hear of him in Acts chapter 7, and the part he played in the stoning death of Stephen, the first martyr. Chapter 8 then begins by saying, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. His sole passion was to punish these new Christians. Chapter 8, verse 3 says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women He would put them in prison. So this guy absolutely hated Jesus and hated Christians. Why did he hate them so much? Well, he was an Orthodox Jew, Pharisee of Pharisees. So he viewed all of his Jewish brethren turning to Christ as the Messiah as blasphemy worthy of death. He literally believed that these Jews believing in Jesus should be put to death. He tells us himself, Acts 22 verse 4, he says, Reflecting, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prisons. He also tells us, autobiography, Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it as I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's why he hated them. Paul's hatred of the church was tied to his extreme pharisaical background, which you know did not mix with the way of Christ. 
He was a true religious zealot. And as you probably know, those people are the hardest to change. I mean, look at uh, look at a radical Muslim today, ready to kill for Allah. Have you ever seen someone like that convert to Christ? It's, it's all within God's power, but it just doesn't happen. Just don't see that happening. But with Paul, that basically happened. Very short time later. So that's Paul, this guy who hates the church, is trying to kill them all and destroy it. Just a, sh- a short time later, we see him, and he's totally changed. He's become born again. Now he fully believes in Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's Lord. Recognize for Paul, this involved a complete worldview shift. He didn't abandon the truth of the Old Testament, but following Jesus meant turning his back on those pharisaical traditions. But this just shows how wholehearted and complete his transformation was. Because as he embraced Christ and the new covenant, he did the unthinkable for a Pharisee. Eating with Gentiles, working on the Sabbath. That just shows his change was real. I mean, he was, he was real. It's like today, maybe you know this like hardcore, militant, vegetarian. They hate all meat. They hate meat eaters. But then they go to a steakhouse and they just pig out. You know they've changed, that something has happened. They've transformed. They have gone against everything they live for. And Paul went 180 the other direction as far as he could go. His transformation was authentic. And furthermore, he became an instant evangelist. Within days of his conversion, he started telling people about Jesus. We'll get to the beginning of Acts 9 later, but look at 920, 920, verse 20. After his conversion, it says, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. So look, Paul's transformation was so radical that the believers didn't even trust him at first. Like, are you a double agent? What are you doing here? But he proved it by speaking out boldly in favor of Christ, proving Jesus is the Christ. He was so convincing that the other Jews decided it's time for Paul to go. And they plot to kill him in the rest of the chapter. So right away, think, this guy goes from wanting to kill those who call on the name of Jesus to instantaneously being ready to die for calling on the name of Jesus. That's an amazing transformation. Paul went on, as you know, to become literally the greatest evangelist the church has ever known. He devoted his entire life to preaching a risen Jesus. Through several missionary journeys, he brought the gospel to new lands. Across the whole Roman Empire, he planted churches, made disciples. No one did more for the spread of of Christianity, humanly speaking, than the Apostle Paul. And to add to that, God inspired much of his ministry correspondence such that he contributed 13 books, pretty much half of the New Testament. Need I say more? Yes, I will say more. (laughs) Turn to, keep a finger in Acts 9. Keep a finger in Acts 9. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Because Paul did all this, humanly speaking, for nothing. I keep repeating this point because it, it bears repeating. 
What did Paul gain in converting from Judaism to Christianity? He left behind power and prestige, position. He was an up-and-comer. He studied under Gamaliel. He he was going to be the next top rabbi. He was going to be the next top of the food chain guy. But he gave all that up, all of it, for Jesus. Why? Money? There's no money. Paul was notoriously one of the poorest guys around, poorest apostles. Fame? His name became known. Everybody knew Paul. But what did he get out of that fame? Well, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27, where he speaks of his authenticity in following Christ. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Have you suffered even one of those things for Christ? Who suffered like this? And remember, he was an enemy at first. So how does he go from killing Christians to offering up his whole life on the altar, ready to suffer and die for Christ? And that's what he ended up doing. Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome. So there's pretty much no greater contrast or turnaround in scripture. Paul moved overnight from completely opposite ends of that spectrum regarding Jesus. That that just doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. That, That demands an explanation. How do you explain that? Especially given his impact. How do you explain this? How do you explain Paul's conversion and his testimony and his claims of seeing the risen Lord? How do you account for this? You see, what's so remarkable about Paul is that his existence is least in doubt, but it's also least explained by unbelievers, by the world. Even unbelieving critics acknowledge Paul really existed. And as much as those guys like to poke holes in the Bible, They all admit, at the very least, he wrote some of the books, like Galatians. Everybody believes Paul wrote Galatians. But that contains his autobiography about seeing the risen Lord. And they just, they don't know what to do with that. They're left scratching their heads trying to explain his transformation. As it stands, there are zero feasible explanations for what happened to Paul. He's truly an enigma to them because, again, he hated Jesus and was no follower, had nothing to gain. He had zero reason to make this up, partake in the lie of the disciples. Why would he do that? Nor was he grieving over the the death of Jesus, prone to some emotional hallucination. Critics do their very best to try and explain away the empty tomb and the transformation of the disciples, but they've got nothing, really, when it comes to James and Paul. Now, there are a few theories, but even these unbelieving skeptics write off themselves. For example, some have suggested maybe Paul had sunstroke or a seizure, caused him to see that light, 
or the latest theory from just last year, maybe Paul saw a fireball-like meteor and knocked him off his feet and caused a temporary blindness. This is all they have. But none of these come close. As you know, Paul didn't just see a light. He saw the risen Lord, and he heard a voice too, and the people with him heard a voice too. Also remember, what Paul saw completely changed his worldview. Just because you have a bad headache or sunstroke, that doesn't change everything you've ever believed. And none of this fits Paul's own testimony. Paul's conversion story is told five different times in the New Testament. Every time it's vivid, it's clear, it's consistent. He gives the same reason for his change every time. And it's the only reason that can account for his transformation. Namely that he too saw the risen Lord. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul writes. They flip back to Acts chapter 9. Scripture, again, gives us the plain yet profound reason that explains Paul's conversion. It is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He rose, he appeared to the apostles, later he appeared to Paul, and that encounter changed him forever. That encounter is found in Acts 9. We're going to read it all together. It's a big chunk, so just follow with me. Let's just read it. Let's see what happened. Acts 9, and we're going to do 1 through 20. Let's see what happened. Acts 9, verse 1. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is just the first account of his conversion. The rest are all the same. They all come from Paul's own mouth. Two more times later in Acts, then Corinthians, then Galatians. And notice, Paul, what did you see here? That, that's worth its own 10 sermon series. But look, he didn't choose this. He wasn't seeking the Lord at all. But the Lord simply invaded his life, blinded him, and then gave him new sight. This is the Lord making Paul born again. And this really, it's the only explanation for his transformation. It had to be something drastic, something real like this, to move Paul from the extreme of killing Christians, being willing to die for his Pharisaical traditions, to turning on those and dying for Christ. There's no other way to explain this. And this is why Paul's conversion especially, you put it all together, you study it all, it's such profound testimony to the reality of Christ's resurrection. And when you add this fact to the other two from last week's, you come away with a very strong, airtight, cumulative case for the resurrection. The empty tomb. The claims of the disciples, they saw the risen Lord and they were transformed. And then opponents like James and Paul were transformed as well. The spread of the early church despite persecution. These are all loud voices that shout, Jesus is alive. He truly rose. And you can't speak over them. No other explanations account for all the facts. If Jesus didn't rise... The church would never have begun, nor survived. If Jesus didn't rise, the preaching of the apostles, that he did rise, would have rung hollow and would have not convinced anyone, nor would they have died for such a lie. The same goes for James and Paul. If Jesus never rose and appeared to them, they never would have changed. They never would have left their good lives, their positions of prestige, especially for for nothing. Literally nothing they got out of this equation but their own death in a lifetime of suffering. But remember, all that happened. Those are all just facts of early ancient history that even unbelievers will assent to. That they'll, they'll accept, they'll have to accept the last part of the story. Okay, yeah, those guys were real. They started the church. But they just refused to accept that the only explanation that makes sense of it all, that he truly rose. But if Jesus did rise, it all makes perfect sense. The tomb is empty because Jesus rose and wasn't there. The disciples believed they saw Jesus because they did. And that appearance transformed them so that they would all give their lives to preach him, risen. Same for Paul, same for James. The only explanation for them being turned on a dime and giving their lives for Christ was that they truly saw him alive from the dead. All these men lived for Jesus and then died for Jesus. And that's what you'd expect. If that really happened, if Jesus really rose and and appeared to these people, you'd expect them to to be transformed 
and then just go tell everybody that he's alive. That's what you'd expect, and it's exactly what happened. The church, therefore, was born, and that's why we're here today. Like I said last week, we the church today, being the spiritual ancestors of the disciples and the apostles, we're that continued living proof. How did we get here? Only because Jesus rose and appeared to them. Well, I hope this study is, has made your faith a little bit stronger. When you study scripture and the facts of history, the evidence, it, it all lines up like you'd expect, confirming what we already believe. And yes, we, we already believe by faith that Jesus rose. We believe that. Like Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But the Lord does not expect us to believe based on nothing. Like Luke put in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Jesus wanted his disciples to have evidence that he truly, bodily, physically rose. That's why he appeared to them. And we won't see that, but we have that testimony left behind, a sure testimony. And we have found that his word is sure, true, reliable, trustworthy. The account is authentic. And it goes with all the reason evidence that we have. So our foundation for belief, which is God's word, it's not built on sand, but on stone. And despite all the attacks launched otherwise, I want you to rest assured in your faith, knowing what you believe and knowing that what you believe makes sense. It is sound. It is sure. It is trustworthy. It can be accounted for. Well, as a, as a closing final thought, maybe in all this you've wondered, well, look, if the case for the reality for the resurrection is, is so strong, if there's so much evidence, if it makes so much sense, how come more people don't believe? That's a good question. But here you must realize that people's unbelief has nothing to do with evidence. Both in Christ's day and today, the problem is not with these convincing proofs of Scripture or insufficient evidence. There's just one problem, that's man's hardened heart given over in sin and rebellion against God that refuses to believe even in the face of evidence. That's the problem. Just think back to the miracles of Jesus when he was alive. His opponents, they saw them with their own eyes. They saw him heal the leper, heal the crippled person. They saw it. What more proof do you want of his lordship? But did they believe? No. They refused to believe. Why? They were hardened in unbelief. Take his greatest miracle ever while alive, which was, do you remember? Raising Lazarus from the dead. John 11:46 says, Many Jews witnessed that event. Some were unbelieving. They ran back. They told the Pharisees what had happened. How did they respond? John 11:47 says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. They didn't even bother doubting the miracle because it was pretty obvious. Everybody knew Lazarus was dead for four days and now he's walking around. They knew. But instead of bowing the knee, they just resolved to kill Jesus. Because here's the issue. You can't be Lord of your own life if Christ is Lord. 
And that, that bugs people because we all want to be Lord of our own life. And so verse 53 says, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. John 12 tells us they also planned to kill Lazarus. Did you know that? Because it says many were coming to believe in Jesus on account of him. Lazarus was living evidence, was he not? He was a living piece of evidence. Like, look, it's real. Look, I was dead for four days. The evidence is there, plain to see. There's proof. Just go talk to Lazarus. But many people still didn't believe. Was it a lack of evidence? No, it was simply being hardened in sin. And they literally wanted to attack the evidence of Christ's resurrection power by killing Lazarus. It's no different today. Nothing has changed. Don't forget what Jesus himself said in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a different Lazarus. But in this parable, this guy, this rich man, he's in hell. And he so desperately wants Father Abraham to go and speak to his brothers to convince them to believe. And he says, look, send someone alive from the dead. That'll, that'll convince them. Then they'll believe and they won't wind up in hell like me. But remember what Abraham says back in this parable that Jesus tells, Luke 16, 31. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There it is. That's, that's all you need. It's plain and clear. And as we've seen, God's word, trustworthy, reliable, authentic. The problem isn't with the word or the evidence or the testimony, but with sin that captivates people's hearts. And being so enslaved in their sin, they will believe anything to keep from believing the one truth that will make them bow the knee to Christ as Lord and give up what they hold dear. Now, thankfully, there's some good news. That kind of sounds depressing. But there's good news and there's hope. The good news is that God still loves to invade people's lives and turn them around, like Paul. He still does that. He still opens blind eyes to allow people to believe. How does God do this? Well, Paul was an exception. Don't expect a Damascus Road experience per se. But what is God's now standard method for opening eyes and bringing people to salvation? It is through the the preaching of the gospel. That's it. By whom? By you and me. So what do you need to do? Just just preach the word. This these sermons are for you to build up your faith. But you you just preach the gospel. The gospel which you have received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and raised on the third day, and appeared to many. Share that message. God says there's power in that message. Romans 1:16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. God has chosen to use that message preached to turn people around. That's how he opens blind eyes and he raises the spiritually dead to new life. So when people around you, when you share, they don't believe or they ridicule the faith, don't be discouraged. We were once no different. But be strong in the faith yourself, encouraged by studies like these, knowing you stand on a foundation of stone. And then simply resolve to preach more, to share more. Just let that gospel fly. That's all you got to do. And God will work. There's only one hope for a lost and dying world. It's the hope of a risen Christ. 
for him and his new life can still speak life to any of the dead. That's our hope. That's our prayer. So just preach the word. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God in heaven, we do indeed thank you for our time in the word. These past three weeks, a little bit different, but at the same time, I hope encouraging and edifying to all of our faith. We already believe, Lord, you have brought us to that point. You have opened the eyes of our heart, showing us who you are, that you are real, the gospel is true, that Christ is our only hope, and we have come to believe in him as our risen Lord. But still, Lord, you've left behind your word because you want us to be built up to a mature man. And as we study the word, and even the evidence that goes with it, and tear down all the assaults contrary, it just strengthens us, confirming what we already believe, and that, that makes us stronger. And Lord, we need to be strong. Attacks continue this day against the faith. They only will get stronger as the days get darker. That's why we need uh, to be stronger ourselves. We glorify you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your death, for your resurrection. In you, we have life. In you, we have new life. And even one day, we too will raise to new life or be raised to new life. Look forward to that now, Lord, and may we just depart with a greater resolve to live out that gospel and to preach that gospel of a risen Jesus. It's the only hope our lost loved ones have for their eyes to be opened as well. May we be faithful in that. We thank you for your grace in opening our eyes as well. We praise you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.